Trigger warning. This program contains death. Also, drug references. I was standing in the kitchen, waiting for the kettle to boil, when the phone call finally came through. Emil had been found. Thank you, I said to the voice on the phone. I don't know why I thanked him. Do you have someone you can be with? Said the policeman. So you're not alone? Uh, no, I said. But, um, I'm fine, I promise. I've been expecting this. I'm sorry, said the voice again. I hung up. <clears throat> It was almost eerie how familiar the call had felt. I'd practiced that phone call so many times in my head. It really did play out just as I imagined it. Even the part where I explained to the policeman about how I had already made peace with it. I'd always imagined saying that part too. The next morning, I sat in a small blue office at the hospital. A young police officer stumbled through the rest of the details. Did you know your son was a heroin user? Asked the policeman. Yes, I said. Did you know where your son was last night? No, I said. Do you know how long your son had been using heroin? Said the policeman. Yes, I said. How long had your son been using heroin? Said the policeman. Around five years, I said. Again, it was strange how familiar it felt to say these words out loud after rehearsing them for so long. Nearly five years I've been having this conversation. It felt almost fake to me now. Like a tired shitty old play you've got something you need me to sign don't you I said hand it over I failed Emil a long time ago maybe right from the start Emil had struggled with addiction from an early age but his mother had always been better at dealing with that sort of thing. After Christine died, I didn't know how to take over. There was one time, about a year after she died, when Emil disappeared for about five weeks. We'd had a big fight. I just thought he'd come back after a few days, but after a month, with word, no sign. That was when the world ended, I think. That was the day 
in my head, but I started to bury him. Of course, he came back in the end, and he was better, much better. But then he went away again and again, but he always came back. Emil never disappeared again for as long as he did the first time. People said that was a good sign, but I never believed them. And I was right. Emil's service was at the same crematorium we'd had Christine's. The service was short. Afterwards, people told me how shocked they'd been to hear about Emil. The whole thing had been so unexpected, they said. But those people clearly hadn't been paying attention. A few of my colleagues asked me if I'd considered coming out of retirement. Sid told me that I could reapply for my old position if I wanted. I'm 68, I told him. But what are you going to do, said Sid. It just seemed like an utterly perverse question. I'm not going to do anything, I said. I'm 68, this is it for me now. Sid asked me if we were going on anywhere afterwards. No, I said, just this. Sid said a whiskey might do me good. Some people need a drink to open up, said Sid. Look, it's easier once we get away from here. I'd love to hear you share some stories. Just so we could, you know, hear what he was like. No, I said. Nothing heavy, Dom, just childhood stuff, you know. For a moment, I wanted to stick my fist down his throat. Did he think I could just pick and choose? Take this bit, but leave this bit. You know, I had lived with this day long enough. Years and years, actually, I've been living in this day. Now, I just... I just wanted to go home. No, I said. I got in the car. The following morning, I got an email from one of my old students. Presumably they'd heard the news. It was a link to an article. 18 photos of good dogs that will melt your heart. Back when I was working at the university, I think I would have rather poked my eyes out than waste my time scrolling through a listicle of dog images, but I don't know. I ended up spending the rest of the morning reading similar articles. 20 facts that only a Spaniard in the UK will understand. 13 beach hacks you need in your life right now. Here we are, the final death rattle of journalism. Not to say that I didn't understand the popularity of the format. I could see why people needed such things. Yeah. There was something pleasing about the grouping of information and simple classification systems. Spatialized, quantified, finite. You get a signposted ending right from the start. From these small, knowable collections of things. What promises? 22 facts that will blow your mind. 18 photos that will restore your faith in humanity. There was something strangely ancient in the language of those titles. They almost sounded like sermons, with their promises of the sublime. 
Once upon a time, it was the church that pointed its finger towards something incredible, ineffable, something beyond. Pledges were made to us about purpose, happiness, meaning. Answers were promised, even though we could barely conceptualise the question. But religion failed us. Science failed us. Now, all we have is this. This was now all that remained of the language of wonder. Seven fun images that will permanently cure your depression. One. This monkey wearing a miniature cowboy hat. Two. This fireman rescuing a child from a burning orphanage. Three. This same fireman, one year later, adopting the child and buying him an exclusive limited edition Xbox with translucent controller and choice of three games. Four. This executed terrorist. Five. This duck, who somehow made a nest in the amud of a synagogue. Six. This expensive course of powerful, personality-altering pharmaceuticals. Seven. This anteater on a trampoline. Sid started phoning a lot. He'd never really done that before, not in 30 years of working together. Hey, Dom. Uh, actually, I'm off on a bird-watching expedition tomorrow, and uh, I wondered if I could borrow your binoculars. He wasn't very good at it. Hi, Dom. I, uh, seem to have lost my calendar. Do you happen to know Pam from HR's birthday? After I'd answered his question, a long silence, and then eventually... So, how are you? Sid would always fill any silence by talking about his work. Sid was a bird behaviouralist. He and I shared a few papers on the subject in the 80s, though Sid had become increasingly specialised in the years since. As far as I understood it, his current research was about empathy in geese. Nobody else at the university seemed to have a clue what he was doing. Recently, Sid had been getting very excited about some upcoming experiment with a perfectly bred cohort of geese. The last time he called, I was just jumping out of the shower. I'm uh, heading out on my research trip next week. They've um, been isolating the geese, specifically. Yes, it's a very remote location. Beneath me, a puddle of murky water was getting larger and larger. We're combining eugenics and social modelling, Domingo. It's a, it's a controversial move. I wanted to interrupt him to point out what a monumental overstep of the employer-employee relationship this was, but I didn't even work for him anymore. And, and, and that's when the birds start developing 
like real empathy, Domingo. He was talking faster than normal. I mean, eugenics. I mean, <laughs> Domingo. Sid. <laughs> There were more people at Sid's funeral than had been at Emil's. I sat with the same cluster of old colleagues as last time. Afterwards, Pam made me go to the pub with them because she said it's what he would have wanted. I wanted to say that nobody knew what Sid would have wanted. Nobody knew what Sid wanted any of the time. Pam started going on and on at me about that research trip Sid was about to take. She kept calling it the trip of his dreams. Sounds like the faculty had already invested quite a lot of money in Sid's research. Apparently, there was nobody else in the department who knew enough about geese to take Sid's place. In the end, I don't know. I suppose I didn't really have anything better to do with my time. It was a two-year placement, they said. Pam helped me get my papers in order. Before I knew it, I was shipping out to a tiny island in the South Atlantic to research goose empathy. The only way you could get to St. Helena Island was by postal ferry. The boat left from Cape Town. It would be six days at sea. The welcome aboard leaflet told me that somewhere I'd find a jacuzzi, small gym, and on Tuesdays, entertainment from Marfonzo, magician of the sea. I immediately became seasick. I lay in my cabin, white as death. The ship lurched forwards and backwards. My stomach lurched along with it. I couldn't believe my stupidity, how easily they'd manipulated me into doing this. Maybe, deep down, I harboured other reasons for leaving. Perhaps... I never truly intended to return. From my window, I watched the island come towards me. A single speck on a blue and misty landscape that I couldn't quite believe. Soon, it was almost impossible to miss. Shadowy and unwelcoming. Impossibly huge volcanic mountains jutting out of the flat landscape. It felt like, like it shouldn't exist at all. The ornithology site was on the other side of the island. One of the postmen said he'd take me over there. I got in his golf buggy. The postman's name was Eric. He was about 40, with a balding head and a nose like a potato. We were zigzagging right up the side of one of the island's volcanic peaks. Eric's sack of mail bouncing around behind us. 
I wondered what would happen if it burst open, letters scattering to the wind. We kept on driving, the zigzag slowing as the peak leveled. The buggy entered a large field of wild grasses. Every now and then, I spotted a little hut. Eric told me that they were the bird boxes. This was the beginning of the ornithology site. Apparently not many people lived out here, or if they did, none of them were receiving any mail. As we approached, a woman ran out towards us. The woman quickly introduced herself as Ruth. She'd been booked as my research assistant, but had just received word of a family emergency. She asked if he could give her a ride back to port. She needed to hurry back to Cape Town right away. Ruth pointed me towards the ornithology building and told me that everything was unlocked and ready for my work. She said the latest cohort of geese would be hatching soon. There was an instructional video on her desk. I asked her when she would be coming back. She wasn't sure, she said. In the house, I found a room with a pair of bunk beds. The curtains in the bedroom were old and translucent. The evening shone sun through them. I wondered if this would have been what Sid was expecting. Soon I was standing in a temporary cabin with two small desks. One of the desks was covered in paper with an apple, half a Kit Kat, and a CD-ROM that said, Instructions. Geese. Tried and tested hacks that will make your newly hatched goslings feel like family. 1. Begin bonding before your babies arrive. Hold an egg to your ear and speak into it like a telephone. 2. When they hatch, make sure you are the first thing they see. If you can, try to exude an air of confidence as if you have raised a family of goslings before. 3. If they do stray too far, you'll want your birds to come back. Invent your own distinctive goose call. You may want to practice in front of a mirror first. 4. It can help to name your geese after children that you remember playing with fondly. Ideally, childhood friends with whom you have not reunited in adulthood. Do not choose the names of friends who will later disappoint you. 5. If anything goes wrong with one of your geese, there are five replacement eggs from the same cohort in Freezer 7. 6. As your goslings ascend into adulthood, you will notice a sharp change in their behaviour. Try not to look directly into a goose's eye. It is a very dangerous idea to pick a fight with an adolescent goose.
so I uh, named the geese after some kids I had swimming lessons with when I was five. Henry, Lucinda, Charlie, Eloise, Deborah, Emily, and Archibald. The geese began to follow me everywhere. They'd even follow me back into the bungalow and sit next to me on the bottom bunk bed where I watched episodes of Frasier I downloaded onto my laptop. It probably wasn't good for them, but I, I didn't really care. I was just glad to finally find somewhere where no one could ask me how I was doing. No more people. Place where I could wait in peace for the end of the world. The birds were a bonus, I guess. Soon the birds were approaching puberty. Archibald, the biggest goose in the group, was almost as tall as I was. Sometimes, when I was feeding or walking them, his head would turn and he would fix me with a single eye. One day, I tripped over the roots of an old tree stump. <laughs> the geese seemed to take it as a kind of personal affront to my dignity. I really went to town on that stump, pecking and pecking. It's like a frantic, feathery Gomorrah. Didn't know how to make it stop. By the time I dared to come close enough, there was nothing left. Just a large, open crater gaping up at me. started to have a recurring dream. In the dream, I saw myself walking calmly across the encampment, followed by my geese. When I reached the cliff edge that bordered the site to the south, I watched myself step off the edge plummeting down into the dark. I decided it was time for a new phase of the experiment. I went out of first light and unraveled some ropes that were holding together an old bird shelter. I took the shelter apart completely, snapping the biggest planks, then hauling the lot back to the cabin. After about two days, my project was finished. A giant harness 
designed to hold the entire gaggle of geese together, strapped into a kind of V formation. From now on, there would be no more stepping out of line, no more attacks. We'd have some order. We would move as one, or not at all. I took the front position. The first goose, Deborah, squeezed herself into the wooden frame beside me. I pulled a rope, gently tightening a noose around one of her feet. One by one, the other geese followed. Last of all, Archibald gracefully stepped into the frame. Now that my geese were fixed in place, I extracted myself from the harness just to show them that, as leader, I was still free to separate myself from the group whenever I liked. I went to tie the harness to a nearby post. I felt a searing pain run down my back, the blood seep into my shirt. Lucinda had clamped herself to my left shoulder. Instinctively, I cuffed her in the face. Unable to break her grip, I swung for a second, only for Henry, eyes blazing, to catch my hand in his beak mid-strike. Henry pulled back sharply, nearly yanking my arm straight out of the socket. I battered him, closed fist, over and over, until I could tear myself free. What are you doing? I spat. I'm trying to help you, you stupid wretches. Archibald's beak came right at me. And I thought about grabbing it and cutting his throat. Or dashing his brains against a rock for a moment. I wanted to kill every single one of them. Of course this was always going to be a failure. These geese never stood a chance. Why should this be any different to anything else in my life? This is what happens. This is always what happens. I felt a flash of feathery whiteness pass above my head. It happened again. A flurry of white. Flocks and flocks of birds flying low over the encampment, soaring over the edge of the cliff a mass evacuation. The geese pulled away from me, waddling as one towards the edge of the cliff. I scrabbled to hold on to the cable. Archibald flapped his wings. The others flapped in unison. Suddenly, I was on my back being dragged through the gorse. My right leg had become completely tangled in the rope of the harness. I grabbed at the ground beneath me, hands tearing at clods of earth, but nothing would hold. It was useless. I was hitched to my flock, and now they were rising. Higher and higher, dangling upside down, suspended within this ridiculous cat's cradle of rope. From my inverted perspective, 
It looked as if the island of St. Helena was rising into the sky above me like a giant UFO. The geese were screaming, a cry full of rage and anger and determination, as if there was something out there, something above us still, that they were demanding an audience with. Soon, the whole island of St. Helena was no more than a tiny green bruise on a black ocean. And then next, the earth itself fell away like a stone. And then, I was in darkness. With my chin against my chest, I could just about make out the beating wings of my geese, rippling shadows against the starfield. I knew I should be dead already, but somehow my lungs were still filling with air. A temperature, too. By this point, my geese and I were far beyond Earth's atmosphere. By now, the temperature should have dropped to absolute zero Kelvin, but... From my perspective, it was quite mild. A strange bubble of atmosphere seemed to surround us still. I knew there had to be a rational, scientific explanation. I tried to time movement in the star field, seeing how long it would take from a star to move from one point of the harness to the other. If my calculations were correct, my geese and I we're traveling around 107 trillion miles per hour. You can shake your head all you want, you know. I know that's what you're doing. Do you know, I don't care if you believe me or not. As if the opinion of anyone matters to me now. As if opinions matter at all. Seven days we travelled at this speed. I did not sleep. I was never tired. I felt no hunger or thirst. I felt no human needs at all. After seven days, I estimated that my geese and I were some 3,000 light years from Earth. At that point, I decided to stop recalculating the number. It was the one thing I was capable of working out and it wasn't one iota of help anyway. I looked again at my geese. Of course, this was my fate. Just like everything else in my life. Here was one more piece of pointless bad luck to finish me off once and for all. On the morning of the eighth day, my geese finally reached their destination. There had always been a destination. 
whether I understood it or not. We were flying right into it. V616 Monocerotis. The nearest black hole to planet Earth. break your already tenuous grip on reality. 1. Black holes are formed when large stars collapse under their own weight. One star's ending is a black hole's beginning. While the original star might be millions of miles wide, the resulting black hole is just a few miles across. This spherical remnant is made of material so dense that it generates an incredibly high gravitational field. Nothing, not even light, can escape. Nothing trapped in the pull of a black hole can ever communicate with our universe again. Black holes are not actually holes, but pits in space-time. Yet, due to the impossibility of recording what happens within, black holes are still considered to be an edge of space, a one-way exit door from our universe. 2. As you get closer to a black hole, the flow of time slows down. According to Einstein's theory, any massive body including the Earth, produces this effect. For example, at sea level, you age one billionth of a second less every year than you would if you lived on the top of Mount Everest. As you get closer to a black hole, the slowing of time is extreme. Any object crossing the event horizon would appear to be frozen at its edge. 3. A black hole is sometimes described as the reverse of creation. Einstein's theory of gravity no longer applies at these scales of distance. New laws of nature must be found to describe what happens there. 4. The words black hole are used as a metaphor even more than they are actually used to describe black holes. Here are a list of the things black holes are compared to. The 2007 subprime mortgage scandal. The process of divorce. Alzheimer's disease. The eyes of a lover. The time loss occurred when checking emails. A compelling new novel from an exciting young novelist. Sponsored post. A toxic relationship clinical depression. This last one being the most common use of the words black hole overall. A black hole is used to describe clinical depression even more than it is used to describe a stellar entity, perhaps due to the rarity of black holes as an object that represents absence. Sadness implies that there is the presence of something, whereas Depression often feels like the absence of something. Depression does not fill your chest, 
it empties it. Not only that, but just like a real black hole, the black hole in our psyche is invisible. We only know it is there when other material passes close by. We have no idea how many holes there are. They cannot be grasped. They cannot be calculated. Within them, all rules of reality break down. Five. Black holes might be the seeds of new universes. Imagine for a second that our universe is alive. Not alive in the sense that it has consciousness, but alive in the same way that, say, a piece of bacteria is alive. According to natural selection, organisms are biologically compelled to reproduce themselves, to produce offspring, which will be similar in design to themselves, although not identical. There will be small changes in design from parent to child. The black holes that fill our universe could be the egg sacs of future universes. These future universes may have slightly different laws of nature to our universe. This is why our own understanding of physics seems to break down upon the study of black holes. The inside of a black hole does not make sense to us in the same way that a parent may not understand the reality of their offspring. In that sense, our own universe, with its unbreakable laws of nature, with its seeming inevitabilities, this universe will also, at some point, have been the errant child to some other parent universe who understood it even less than we did. As my geese and I fell under the influence of V616, I felt my reality begin to shift. They say, at the centre of a black hole, time and space swap over. Matter is pulled towards a black hole, not because of the rules of space, but because of the rules of time. To be affected by that force was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. For the first time, I believe I experienced true inevitability. The best I can describe it is like this. Imagine standing still and that instead of you moving, the world is moving around you instead. As if it were the force of time itself pushing the scenery around you. 
Rooms slide back and forth. Doors open and thread you through them. Pavements become huge conveyor belts upon which the city glides towards you. Now you are standing in front of a lecture hall. Now you are standing in the queue at the post office. Now you are standing in your kitchen, waiting for the kettle to boil. Now you are waiting on a train platform. And now, and now, the world pre-programmed, calculated, automated, running 24 hours a day. The closer my geese and I came to Black Hole V616, the stronger this feeling became. I knew then that I would never escape it. I could not turn around any more than I could travel back in time to yesterday. I thought back to Earth, how I had wasted so much, fooling myself into thinking that my future had already been written, acting as if each death was unavoidable. Every blow I suffered somehow preordained. Only now, in my final breath, could I experience the horror that I had been pretending to suffer all along. Time closed around me like a cage. One by one, the stars disappeared all remaining light in the universe faded away as we crossed the event horizon all concept of movement disappeared now my geese and i were frozen suspended in air like a painting I heard one of my geese cry out. Somehow the sound seemed to stick in his throat. The cry extending forever into the future, becoming part of the fabric of the universe. We were in the past, but in the future also smeared across the timeline. An incredible calm descended upon me. It reminded me of traveling through the fens by train when I was a little boy. How I would look out the window of my carriage at the fast moving fields beyond and my mind would simply float away, incapable of engaging in any earthly matters until the train slowed into a station. Perhaps it had something to do with travelling at high speeds. One stops existing in a singular location. Every second, one finds themselves somewhere completely new. The very notion of existence begins to stretch out into a line. Who we are and when we are 
become muddled together until time itself begins to feel like an illusion. I remembered Emil, age five, sitting on my shoulders, striding through a forest, the new forest maybe, Christine handing him an apple from her rucksack. Emil, holding my ears for support. I remember reaching up to tussle his hair. And as I reached, I could feel myself growing taller. My feet somehow pulling away from me, becoming entangled in the molecules that were once my geese. My world narrowing, stretching, my arms, ribbons, pulled thinner and thinner until I was no more than a silver thread dangled in the nothing, invisible, a crack in the blackboard. A line of atom I woke to find myself half submerged in a pool of mud. Spluttering to my knees, my eyes stinging from the light, I tried to take in my surroundings. I was lying in the middle of a rubbish tip of some kind. On all sides, mounds of rubbish, abandoned metals and plastic, unsorted. On a nearby mound, I saw my geese. They seemed to have found a meal of some kind among the debris. For a second, I thought I had somehow returned to Earth. But then, my eyes adjusted to the color of the sky. It was red. The color of cherry blossom. I wondered if I was dreaming, or dead, or in hell. I was so tired, I couldn't begin to process the weight of this huge red sky upon me. I kept my head down and just walked. I walked and walked. I wondered if my geese would see me and follow, but when I turned back, there was no one there. put my head back down and kept walking. I didn't know what else to do. Eventually, I came across a vehicle. Apart from perhaps a couple of subtle design variations, the vehicle looked pretty much identical to a 1996 Citroen Berlingo. As I approached the vehicle, an alien emerged from behind a dune of rubbish. 
the alien wore overalls and thick gloves. Ah, uh, I said. I don't know how I got here. said the alien. Sorry, I said. Uh, I didn't quite catch that. F oh, f monkey in the bag in me bag. No, I said, I'm not, um, I'm really not getting any of that. The alien pulled out his mobile phone and took a photo of me. He pointed at his van. Fuck said the alien. I took off my muddy jacket and got into the passenger seat. After a few minutes drive, we reached the edge of the rubbish tip. Then we were driving along a ring road of some kind. Two giant moons hung in the sky like a pair of pupilless eyes. I was hungry and tired. I knew I should have had more questions, but I just didn't care. The car made its way into the alien city. Reminded me a little bit of leads. Four facts about life on an alien planet that will mind you for One. One cannot travel through a black hole. No planet could exist at the centre of such a thing and yet Somehow, it does exist. Even more bizarre, the planet resembles Earth in a multitude of ways. All the same, it is not Earth. The citizens of this planet call it Florum. For the sake of clarity, we shall call it the Black Hole Planet. We may not know how the Black Hole Planet exists, but then again, we don't really know how planet Earth exists either. The planet retains many of the metaphorical qualities that we associate with black holes. Such similarities will become apparent through the rest of this article. To those that feel that the name black hole planet is misleading or unscientific or simply uninspired, to use a native expression, I politely invite you to one of the most difficult cultural gaps to navigate between Earth and the black hole planet is the use of language. Language on the black hole planet has evolved in such a way that rather than making one's choice of words from a set of potential synonyms, one says every possible word at exactly the same time. The words layered up over the top of each other create a kind of simplistic music. Or as the black hole planet would say, It is oddly soothing. Removing the need to choose one's words moves all creativity from the speaker to the listener. One simply tries to hear what one wants to hear. All citizens of the black hole planet spend many years learning to interpret these tones. 
the children slowly become attuned to different harmonies and layers, stripping them back to form increasingly more detailed pictures. Picture Michelangelo in his studio, scraping back layer on layer of marble until he created David. 3. Life on the black hole planet has evolved to function without long-term memory. By necessity, people of the black hole planet have evolved to roll with the punches. What is and what isn't real tends to be defined by immediate surrounding phenomena. If a baby turns up in a cot in your house, you assume responsibility without question. If you can't remember where you parked your car, you probably never had a car in the first place. If a confused elderly man approaches you on foot when you're dropping stuff off at the rubbish tip, he's probably your grandfather, so you take him home. Also, seeing as the word for elderly is simultaneously meaning ancient, tired, relic, exhausted, declining, not to mention sacred, wise, venerated. Most prefer to act first and choose their interpretation later. 4. The black hole planet loves listicles, perhaps even more than Earth. The lack of long-term memory on the black hole planet makes the act of listing all the more important. Maybe this is why it spends such an awful lot of energy compulsively itemising itself over and over. Perhaps the people of the black hole planet are worried that if they stop listing things, they'd forget that things existed. If they stop listing things, they'd forget that things existed. If they stop listing things, they'd forget that things existed. If they stop listing things, they'd forget that things existed. The alien took me to his house. It was a uh, professional neighbourhood. I watched the alien print out a photo of me that he took at the rubbish dump. He stuck it on the door of their spare room. I decided that was my cue. I went through the door, climbed into the bed and immediately fell asleep. When I emerged the following morning, I met the rest of the family. Husband, wife, three kids. There were no questions, no interrogation. Like, I'd always been living with them. As if this was just another morning. They tried talking to me, but quickly accepted my inability to communicate. Perhaps they thought I was senile. I was just grandad now, left to my own devices. It was probably for the best that I couldn't communicate. I mean, what would I say? That I had materialised on their planet after falling through a black hole? No, I could be granddad. At least, while I recovered. For aliens, they all looked so incredibly unremarkable. If you saw a photo of all of us together, you wouldn't necessarily know that one of us was from a different universe. The youngest child beamed at me. 
across the table. It was almost too much. It seemed that the father made regular visits to the rubbish tip, looking for useful objects. It was something akin to antique trading. The children were collectors too, scouring the rubbish dunes on the weekends, wading through broken microwaves, gathering finds. One child collected car seats, another collected empty ready meal packets. Scavenging, it seemed, was having a fashionable moment. I managed to find my geese. They'd sought out some water, still together as a unit. They too had become scavengers, I thought. I noticed that Archibald was sitting apart from the rest of the group. Always the rebel, I thought. As I came closer, I could see there was something wrong. I tried to lift him. His neck was soft and wilted, like an old piece of celery. He turned his beady left eye towards me. After all those years telling myself that the end of my life was written right from the start, here I was, holding this bird, stranded on an alien planet on the other side of a black hole. For fuck's sake, I thought to myself. No one saw this coming. Nobody could have ever seen this coming. So, for once in my life, can I not just acknowledge this? Couldn't I just once admit to myself, like, the fucking unfairness of it all? Let myself be fucking angry just for a minute, just to let myself feel it. Just to let that pain up and out of my throat because this this is not how stories are supposed to go and I have every fucking right to say that after everything can't pretend that I anticipated this shit any longer and with that the tears came And they would not stop. It wasn't just for this fading life in front of me, but for everything. Everything that came before. Most weekdays, I took the bus from my house into the city and sat on the bench outside the shopping centre. Apart from the red sky, everything looked so much like Earth. I could almost fool myself into thinking I was home. 
I just sat and watched people mostly, moving to and fro across the concourse. There was so much to explore here on this incredible alien planet, like bus timetables and uh, making friends with the guy who runs the laundrette. It might not sound much like Buck Rogers, but it was a whole new world, all the same. First, of course, I had to learn how to speak the language. It took until I was 85, but slowly I began to grasp it. It turns out on the black hole planet, they mourn their dead by writing songs just like us, really. It's a way to remember, which is all the more important on a planet that forgets so easily. On my 87th birthday, I started work on my first song. The first draft was in English, of course. I called the song One of Seven Geese Who Saved My Life. Over time, I added more layers of interpretation, more ways of saying the same thing, but with different words at the same time. I wanted to find a way to make the song simultaneously about everyone I'd ever loved. By then, the song's title was Of course, I taught the song to the rest of my family, who, in turn, added their own interpretations, their own memories of those they'd loved who'd passed. So naturally, the song became longer, denser. By the time I turned 89, the title of the song was You know, I'm probably biased, but um, I think it might be the saddest song ever written. By the time I turned 90, the song was called Shit Box Called That version was less beautiful, but then when I was 91, it became Wood in a and uh, arguably, that was even better. Come 92, it was Then, when I turned 93, it was 95 was and 96 97 98 So, um, this episode of the Imaginary Advice podcast was a writing collaboration between me and the artist Abby Palmer. 
Abby was the voice you heard reading the listicle sections of the story, although both of us worked on both sections of the text. We weren't just reading our own parts. Despite the um, unusual structure of the story of this episode, um, the concept came from an existing story, uh, a story called The Man in the Moon by Francis Godwin, originally published in 1638. In fact, um, The Man in the Moon is considered by many to be the first ever work of science fiction. Um, the author, uh, Francis Godwin, was a bishop. He was the son of Thomas Godwin, uh, Bishop of Bath and Wells. Now, similar to our adaptation, Godwin's original story doesn't really reveal itself to be sci-fi until its second half. Uh, the first half of Godwin's story is more like um, an adventure novel. Just like our story, there's a Spaniard called Domingo Gonzalez who is forced to flee Spain after killing a man in a duel. Um, then he ends up shipwrecked on the island of St. Helena where he discovers a new species of giant wild goose that he calls a ganza. Um, Domingo creates a harness for his geese to create a rudimentary flying machine. Domingo is eventually rescued by another ship. But um, when that ship gets attacked, Domingo decides to use his geese contraption to escape. But rather than just fly Domingo to shore, the geese fly him all the way to the moon, uh, where Domingo discovers this um, this kind of pastoral paradise. The moon is populated by a race of tall, human-like people called the Lunars. A little bit like our story. Um, in Godwin's version, the Lunars speak a kind of beautiful musical language. It sounds like song. The, um, the moon section of Godwin's book is basically a piece of Christian utopian fiction. At the time of writing, there was a lot of conflict within the Protestant church, and Godwin uses the lunar society to paint a picture of the world where those conflicts have all been resolved. All the aliens are Christian in Godwin's story, I should say. Now, for our adaptation... Obviously, Abby and I swapped out the moon for a black hole. Um, we figured it made sense in the 1600s for the moon to be a symbol of utopian dreaming because we'd never been there. So of course we should look up at the moon and project our hopes and dreams upon it. But in 2020, the astronomical symbol that invokes the most amount of dreaming is probably a black hole, right? They're still so unknown, they're so uncertain. They feel more dream than real, more symbol than reality. But of course, like the, uh, the symbolic meaning of a black hole feels very different to the kind of meanings that we associate with the moon. Black holes are not utopian objects. They're, they're most commonly metaphors associated with nihilism. So Abby and I... Um, we, we tried to write a story that reflected that sense of nihilism. We did not expect the story to end up as long as this, um, which I think is now by far like the longest episode I've ever put out. It's like the size of two or three usual episodes, but um, I mean, that's the deal. 
with experiments like this. We just strapped him for the journey and uh, let the geese take us wherever they want it to go. Um, a huge thanks to Abby Palmer for her time and her brains on this. Abby has her debut poetry collection coming out this April. It's called Sanatorium, and uh, you can pre-order a copy via her publishers. That's pennedinthemargins.co.uk. Um, this episode was additionally supported by Apples and Snakes. Apples and Snakes is an organisation supporting poets and spoken word artists across the UK, so thanks so much to them for commissioning this special episode. Find out more about them at applesandsnakes.org. Thanks also to the patron supporters of Imaginary Advice who helped me spend the extra time required to pull this episode off. If you would like to support the podcast with a small monthly donation, uh, I need your help please uh, go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash ross g sutherland uh yeah i'll be back soon with more imaginary advice